Please be seated. Good evening to you. Book of Proverbs, chapter 13 tonight, in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, that's, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them and they'll get you one. And that way you can read along as well as hear, and the Word will have double the impact, maybe even more. Chapter 13, and we pick things up in verse 11. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor, that is, gathers wealth, will increase. And so wealth that is gained um, by dishonesty or gained without any kind of uh, exertion because of uh, dishonesty, a life of crime or stealing, and there's, there is white-collar work today that is uh, a life of crime in some respects. So uh, money comes easy come, easy go. When, when money is uh, gained by an unrighteous means, and, uh, but the proverb tells us that wealth that is gained by hard work, it lasts. And one of the reasons that it lasts um, is because it produces a character in our lives. When we earn the money that we have, uh, we have at the same time not only received the paycheck, but we have also had uh, grown in the character to properly handle that money in general. I remember the first, one of the first jobs I ever had was picking prunes in the Napa Valley. And uh, Napa used to be known for prunes, lots of prune orchards. Back then there were no McDonald's or anything like that. I mean, I'm talking about way, ooh, man. So work was pretty tough to find. And they started school later in the year. They started it mid-September in order to bring in the crops in Napa and uh, have adequate child labor to do that. And we were very thankful for it. And you'd get something like 25 cents a box for a box of prunes, and you'd work all the way through the month of, <clears throat> month of August in order to buy a couple of pair of blue jeans and a Pacific Trail jacket and some white T-shirts and some boots to get you through for the next uh, school year. There's something about it. It's good even for the rest of your life. Sometimes you'll be in a store and you're going to go to buy something on a whim and then you think of it in terms of boxes of prunes. <laughs> it slows you down. There's something wonderful about earning money and that it does something good to then develop that character and that kind of person ends up spending it wisely. We think about sometimes people who get an inheritance, especially so sometimes that can be easy come, easy go too, and they get it too early in life, and whew, it's all gone so quick because they lack the character to properly handle it. Hope deferred, verse 12, makes the heart sick, but when desire comes, it is a tree of life. And so when we're hoping for something to happen and it's repeatedly delayed, it doesn't come to pass for a long time, it really brings disappointment. The hope or the desire to be married or the hope for a promotion or the hope for a job interview 
um, these kind of things that we're desiring in life, we're hoping for them to happen. And then so often it's not this time, not this time, not this time. And, you know, put in your application and we'll be looking at hiring again in such and such a quarter and all. Um, you say, what good can come of that? I mean, it makes the heart sick, the disappointment of it. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. And so ultimately, the one good thing about the delay is, is that when the hope finally does come, we appreciate it so more. You know, if everything came to us so easy, if it, all we wanted it and then it just came, there was never any disappointment. Or, I mean, we would just begin to treat all of these blessings as nothing. So sometimes the Lord will make us wait. And then we get it. We say, thank you, Lord. I mean, he gets praise and he gets thanksgiving and worship that he would have never gotten uh, otherwise. And so once we get it, boy, it's a tree uh, of life inside of us. It's just so satisfying and uh, so refreshing. Verse 13, he who despises the word, and speaking of the word of God, will be destroyed. In other words, uh, heeding the word of God is life and death important. And it really is. God doesn't just fill this book with a bunch of words because it could be five pages long and that would have kind of encapsulated everything he had to say. God isn't overly, he's not verbose at all, let alone overly uh, talkative. Everything is in there for uh, a reason and it's for a purpose. And obeying his word is life and death uh, important. And uh, so... When uh, So he who despises the word of God will be destroyed, but he who fears that it, and always the fear of God is, is marked by obedience, the commandment will be rewarded. Verse 14, the law of the wise is a fountain of life. It's refreshing to turn one away from the snares of death. And so God's law keeps me from... Uh, falling into traps that can lead to death. I wonder how many of us in the room tonight, if we hadn't been saved and we weren't walking with the Lord, how many of us would have been dead long ago? Think about the, what, the trouble that the Word of God, obedience to it, keeps us out of every single day. And some of that trouble, again, is life and death hangs in the balance and obedience keeps us in that safe place. You know the old saying, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Most people think that, that sin is only bad because God forbids it. But uh, sin is forbidden because it is bad. And so the protective element of the Word of God. Good understanding, verse 15, gains favor. But the way of the unfaithful is hard. And so in general, a man with a good sense or in the sense of the, the Proverbs, with godly sense, that man in general, is a, he's always appreciated by God. But, and then generally he is appreciated by man, depending on how godly the culture is at the moment. Uh, this is sig- very significant, the latter half of verse 15. The way of the unfaithful is hard. I like it in the old King James. The way of the transgressor is hard. It is hard. You say, well, the Christian life sure is hard. Well, it is hard in a lot of ways. It's an easier life to live in many respects. 
but it is far harder to live apart from God and in disobedience to His Word. The way of the transgressor is hard. Believe it. It's hard every day, every single day. And uh, again, so often we think about our culture who glorifies the life of the transgressor. The transgressor, again, is the person that shakes their fist at God and says, I don't care what he says. I'm going to deliberately disobey his word. God says that life is hard every day, and God makes it hard. Don't believe the TV shows. Don't believe the reality shows. You know what you want to believe? Believe the newspaper. And every day the newspaper preaches that the way of the transgressor is hard. Verse 16, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. In other words, our actions reveal us to be what we really are on the inside. So if a person is prudent or he's wise... It will be revealed in the fact that he will be responsible in the way that he acts. And ultimately, uh, the proverb tells us the fool will always display his folly. Why? Because he's a fool. I say it affectionately. But, I, but it's, it's real. So what is in us is going to come out. That's, the way that it, uh, that's just the way uh, that it is. You can't hide it. And so the lesson of... Uh, verse 16 is, be prudent and don't be a fool. All right, that's about as straightforward as you can get. Be wise, don't be a fool. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, and the idea is he's been sent by someone to take a message, and he creates trouble uh, for the one who has sent him. But a faithful ambassador or messenger brings health to both sides. He brings the accurate message and both understand the one another properly, and it brings health to the situation. And uh, so the curse of the person who's unfaithful in delivering the message and the blessing of the ambassador who carefully uh, delivers the message, nowhere is that more important than as it relates to the gospel and the word of God. The importance of properly delivering the message. And nowhere is it more important related to the Word of God than in salvation, to deliver the gospel accurately so that people know how to be saved. We've been sent by God to deliver a message to people, and that message is to be uh, properly uh, communicated. It's a terrible thing for people to preach another gospel than the message that God has given to us uh, to preach. Like in Galatians chapter 1, Paul wrote concerning himself. He said, but even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Wow. As I've said before, so now I say again. So in case somebody read verse 8 and they thought, okay, he's kidding. I mean, he's got a gift for hyperbole here. No, he doesn't. He says in verse 9, For as we have said before, now I say so again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. The importance of delivering that message accurately. And so many people claim to represent God today, but they aren't delivering the message. Just the other day, um, in fact yesterday, we had a couple of uh, Jehovah Witnesses come um, to our house. And that always excites me because I have a heart for um, people that are caught 
in these systems and all. It's always interesting to me with Jehovah Witnesses with how they're going to approach. Kind of each month they're given a new way to approach you. And uh, they're going to talk about how terrible the earth is and and uh, or they're going to talk about life after death and will you see your loved ones. And that's kind of the approach that they took yesterday. Two women came up um, to me and and they started to share and everything. So they hand me the brochure that they're giving and they're talking to me about the fact that won't you, uh, don't you want to go to heaven someday and don't you want to meet the people that are in heaven that have gone before you? So, oh, I certainly do. So I'm a born-again Christian. And Jesus said in John 3:16, For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's me, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have everlasting life right now. I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be in heaven with everyone that I love that has gone to heaven before me. And I see they've come to my doorstep so they gotta, they've got to make me dissatisfied with what I already have. That's... That's the pressure that they're under. So I just look at them like a goon. (laughs) It's just like, now what do you know that can top that? And the lady said, well, would you mind reading the scriptures in the the leaflet? You know, so I threw it away afterwards. But I only had, I knew because I was in the middle of a project. They saw I was in the middle of a project. I knew I only had them for a minute or so. And so what's the greatest thing we can do? Preach the gospel to them. And then afterwards say, Lord, let them have seen something different in this goofy guy that they came to talk to and the word that was delivered uh, to them. Verse 18, poverty. So this is a physical uh, consequence and shame. That's an emotional consequence. Will, that's a promise word will come to him who disdains correction. But he who regards a rebuke will be honored. And so correction and reproof is never fun, uh, but the teachable uh, for the teachable person, it always results in honor. None of us are going to ever attain to a position of honor except that there have been considerable number of rebukes and correction along the way. And sometimes we want all that honor, but we don't want to pay the price of people speaking into our life for character in order to get there. But it is a package deal. It's how we learn. And so don't be unsettled by that or wiped out by that. Um, That's just the way that it is. Verse 19, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul of of a good man is the idea. But it is an abomination to fools to depart from evil. And so, again, this speaks of the satisfaction and the joy that comes to the soul of a person who, uh, when a good or a godly desire or dream is realized. And that's one of the greatest things. Somebody's got this goal. They've got this dream. They've got this hope. It's a godly thing. It's a wonderful thing. And then it happens. And that's one of the greatest feelings a person will ever experience in life. And the writer of the book of Proverbs says the fool never experiences that. We'll never know that, not one time in his life. 
He will never know what that uh, feels like because they refuse to depart from evil. Verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So again, this is a proverb speaking to the importance of who we make our influencers or who we make our friends uh, in, in our lives and who we make our friends. Uh, the proverb tells us many times is life and death important. I remember and it goes on in every was on in every generation. I think about um, sometimes you get, you know, just over and over people fall in with the wrong crowd. And always when it gets to like in June and people have their graduations and they're in with the wrong crowd and then somebody's drunk and they're driving or whatever and somebody ends up dead and the whole, it's just, it really is life and death importance. You go move over and speak of drugs. You speak of a lot of different things. Who it is that we make our peers. And so we want to find wise people, be influenced by their wisdom. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians. He says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You've got good habits, but you put evil people around you, and they can overwhelm all of that. Somebody else put it this way. He who lies down with dogs shall rise up with fleas. That's a little more earthy, but it says the same thing. Verse 21, evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. And that, and the idea is repaid by God. So it is very true that um, sinners or, or the wicked, they pursue evil. And that's very much a part of the progression. Wicked people pursue evil. But it's also true that evil pursues uh, sinners. And once a door is opened up to evil, how often this happens in a person's life where they just think like the whole world is just neutral, there's no demonic realm around us, there's no spiritual realm around us, I can pursue evil and... And it won't pay any consequence to it. I can just shut it off any time I want. And then they pursue evil, and then they realize one day, ah, there was a hook to this, and that evil has got a hook in me now, and now it's hunting me down, and it's pursuing me. I've lost control of the situation. And it's important to realize that that's what evil does. It, it hunts, it's looking for people who are foolish enough to open their lives up uh, to that, uh, to that evil, and uh, and then uh, once a person gets caught into that place, then they realize this evil wasn't a friend. It's taking control of my life. It is an enemy, and then they cry, "Help!" And praise the Lord, God has provided help in His Son, because Jesus came into the world not only to save us from the penalty of our sin, which is eternal death that a judgment that our sin deserves. But Jesus came into the world to die on that cross in order to provide us with a power that is greater than any hold of sin upon our lives. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so uh, there's always hope in any situation where the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is uh, brought in. And then the latter part, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid by God. And so for the, the Bible says, surely goodness and mercy shall 
follow you all the days of your life for our lives. And so that's what happens. We follow after God, and then we look around. We don't have to worry that evil's hunting us down, but goodness and mercy is always uh, pursuing us. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so uh, he doesn't selfishly spend everything on himself. He takes into account not only his children, but his grandchildren. You've seen the bumper sticker. I hope nobody has it on their car. You'll take it off, won't you? It says, spending my children's inheritance. Sometimes you could just get a sense that there's like a root of bitterness there somewhere, you know. And sometimes I think parents can look and say, well, I, it'll be a waste in their current condition of the relationship or their maturity to give them anything. Let's spend it. But there is um, within the heart of a godly person a desire that um, the life of their children will be better than the life that they had materially and that the life of their grandchildren will be better than the life that they had. That's just that something that's been true about us. It's been one of the things that's true about us as Americans for generations is the hope that we're always on this path, that that's going to be true. But a lack of character is um, is eroding that confidence now at this point in, in our culture. But it's a good desire uh, to have a concern to bless all the way down into the next generation uh, and even uh, beyond. And, of course, this, this speaks uh, of material wealth, but, of course, uh, not everyone has material wealth to pass on to children or uh, to grandchildren that don't accumulate that kind of an estate. And so everything material pales in comparison to godly influence and uh, the impact of a grandparent upon grandchildren. That's the, the greatest thing that we leave them, that spiritual inheritance. He talks in the latter part of that in verse 2 that the wealth of the sinner always finds its way back into the hands of the righteous. It always does. Man, money just flies through the hands of the wicked. I don't care how much they make. They could be the drug lord in Colombia. They got, they got to buy another mansion to stack it up with money. They have it for a while. It will ultimately end up in the hands of the righteous. It may take a little while, depending on the moral climate, again, of the world at the time, and whether it's rewarding unrighteousness and, um, or rewarding righteousness, but it will always end up flowing back to the righteous. Why? Because that's how God has made things. And you see it in history. You see these kings and kingdoms and reigns and reichs and all of these things going in this one direction. It looks like everything is funneling toward them. Evil is going to win. All of the resources are in their hands. And then sometimes we can't know it about our present tense because we're living right in the middle of it. But that's why it's good to be a student of history. You look back and always that money ran out of their hands and, the, and it moved back to the righteous. And the reason that it does is God has established all of creation to bless righteousness over the long haul. And so it's fighting not only against God, but how it is that he has set up uh, the entire 
world. Verse 23, much food is in the fallow or the uncultivated ground of the poor. So here's a poor man who has a couple of acres or a half an acre, and it's all hard ground because he's not um, able to cultivate it for a reason. And the reason we get to now at this uh, point, much food Potential food is in the uncultivated ground of the poor, and for lack of justice, there is waste. This is a powerful proverb, very important proverb, and it speaks to the injustice and the oppression of those who have great resources toward those who have little. And he's using an agrarian uh, example here of a rich farmer, someone who is a, a you know, has a, a big business or a big, you know, rancher or a big businessman who then squashes any attempt, even by the poor, to intrude into their market or into their business or into their profits. So here's this guy and he wants to uh, raise a few tomatoes to sell them in the market to advance himself. But here's the guy over here who's got thousands of acres in tomatoes and he's not going to let this guy even get going. Whatever he has to do in terms of business practices to squash him in any competition, that's exactly uh, what he does. Now, there is, this is where kind of free market capitalism is it spoken about uh, today. Nothing wrong with that in many respects. But sometimes free market capitalism, it morphs into commercial Babylon. You say, what's the difference between the two? Commercial Babylon is when the business, the money, becomes more important than loving God and loving my neighbor as myself. So whenever making a profit, I am tempted to violate the two greatest commands in God's Word, which is to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, then now that business has moved from like a free market, healthy kind of thing, and now it's moved into commercial Babylon, where mammon, money, is being worshipped above God and being a representative of God and above our fellow man. And that system is going to be a a system that is going to grow more and more in the last days. It will really thrive under the Antichrist during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. And then God will overthrow both religious Babylon and commercial Babylon, spoken of in the book of of Revelation. He will just uh, bring a tremendous judgment uh, upon that. When you have a business system in the world or even individually where now in, in that particular system where a person looks at that and says, what is most important in this world is not other people, but the bottom line, that dollar, that money, the stockholders. And now people just become, as God speaks about in the book of Revelation concerning commercial Babylon, where now people are just like these oranges that you cut in half and you grind them out 
take all the juice and vitality from them, throw them over in a heap because you got five or six billion more to just grab and put into the machine. And now the machine is more important than the people and, and people's lives are being destroyed. Now everything's upside down and that. And God will judge it. It's funny, sometimes you have a family where uh, there's a family business and you have this family that loves one another. They look out for one another. They have this moral code um, where, you know, blood is thicker than water and look out for your brother, look out for your sister, look out for the family and all of this wonderful thing that makes a family the wonderful thing that it can be. And then one day the boy goes off to college or the girl and then they come back with their business degree or whatever. They're introduced at the age of 21, 22 into the family business. And then dad takes them aside and starts to tell them about how to run the business. And it's a polar opposite to the values that he raised them with in that home. And the son says, what is this? I've never seen this side of you and your attitude toward other people. Business is business. But listen, what is good for an individual family is good for the world and the family of man. Everybody's been created by God. So it's a very, very important proverb, I think, especially as we see the the, the pressure that is on people economically, the worship of mammon, money, God, uh, as a God gain being worshipped, to not allow ourselves to wear, okay, this is now more important to me than obeying God and uh, loving him and loving people. Verse 24, he who spares uh, his rod or spoon uh, or whatever switch hates his son, but he who loves his son disciplines him promptly. And so uh, this speaks of the fact that a loving parent will subject uh, our children uh, to, as necessary, to kind of a comparatively brief um, season or minute or two of applied psychology um, in the proper place related to their backside for wrongdoing. They've done something wrong. Now it's a character issue that's going on in their life. And so we're going to discipline them so in order to turn them away from uh, developing a wrong character in their life that can then end up being uh, destructive for their whole life, end up making them crash and uh, making them burn. And so it's the unloving parent who will not discipline their child and uh, fails to correct those things they see in their children's life uh, that is going to lead to tragedy if they aren't uh, removed from their life by whatever measure is, uh, is necessary. And boy... I tell you, if you use corporal punishment related to your children, uh, does that divide a family or what? I mean, not not the husband and wife necessarily and the kids, but out beyond. They just don't understand. This is the cruelest thing. To put them in a, give them a timeout. Uh, what they just did is bigger than a timeout. And it's the tenth time. It's becoming ingrained in their character. I've got to get their attention here. And so God teaches in his word unapologetically, unapologetically, corporal punishment, whether 
uh, the enlightened people of today agree with it uh, or they disagree with it. It's never to be done in fleshly anger, always to be done in the control of the Holy Spirit. Never, ever, ever spank a child until we are completely under the control of the Holy Spirit. So important to do that. And then the, di- the discipline or the spanking is an act of discipleship. And so you've got rebellion and disobedience going on in their life. It needs to be dealt with. Not everything they do wrong is like, okay, now I'm going to spank you. But there are those certain things where um, they've done something that's very, very significant. And you take them aside privately. God deals with our sin privately. So we don't just, you know, at the cash register at Target. Does God deal with you at the cash register at Target? So we find a quiet place, you know, in the house. We take them aside and say, son, what did you do that was wrong there? We want them to understand what this is about. This is what I did. All right. Why is that wrong? This is why it's wrong. What are you going to do next time? I'm going to do it different next time. Here's what I'm going to do. So they understand. See, that's character development. That's not just, all right, I'm going to give you a spank and you won't forget. We're trying to to disciple a child into Christ-likeness. And so to help them understand, and then the spanking occurs, and then we take them into our arms, and then we pray for them and uh, make sure that they're very strong and understanding that God has forgiven them with their confession of sin and then that they are welcomed back into the family. They come bounding out of that room and into the family and now they're eating popcorn with everyone else. It's a changed child from three minutes before because it's been dealt with. It's left back there and now everything is a fresh start there and it's a, it's a powerful thing. God knows um, you know, how to do all of this. I think about when I, my generation, when we were growing up, boy, every home just about had Dr. Spock's book, Benjamin Spock, didn't they, in the house. Uh, that was in our, our house. I don't know that anybody ever read it, but it was in the house. I don't remember things being excessively permissive, is what I'm saying there, um, related to things. But it was interesting that Dr. Benjamin Spock, he was, um, after encouraging parents to be so permissive in his book, it was absolutely a bestseller. I don't know, it made him a fabulously wealthy man. And later on he was interviewed after he was able to kind of witness a generation come out of his teaching of uh, what were referred to as bratty, pesky kids. (laughs) And he admitted that he was wrong. He said this. He said, inability to be firm is, to my mind, the commonest problem of parents in America today. And then he went on and he placed the blame in part on the experts. He said the child psychiatrists, psychologists, teachers, social workers, and pediatricians like myself. Now, of course, not all of them are wrong in everything that they say concerning their field, but this whole idea uh, that God's way is outmoded, it's ineffective, it won't work. And every child's different. You know, you have one child where they've got this temperament where you uh, tell them to do something and they disobey and you look over at them. (laughs) You just look at them and they're going to be three weeks recovering from that look. (laughs) Ah, 
but then you get the other child and you look at them and they look at you back and you got to escalate on things in order to fashion their character. And they may even grow up and say, that didn't have any effect on me and that didn't do anything and I just reject the whole deal. I know better. You'd be a hundred times worse than you are today. (laughs) So you raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Don't leave it to the experts. Again, there's wonderful resources on disciplining children. Let me just go on a little bit longer about this. Since I'm no longer a kid. (laughs) Oh, but does God spank? Seriously. Oh, my. He can discipline us in a way that our parents never dreamed of. So, you know, he's at work related to that. I remember when Karen and I were brand new Christians. Our oldest one was strong-willed. And I remember going to one of the assistant pastors in the church, and he was over the children's ministry and saying, I understand the Bible talks about spanking a little bit related to things and all. Oh, no, no, you don't. No, no, that doesn't. No, mm-mm. no way. Okay. So I went back home after church as feeling as hopeless as, as before, you know, on things. And then I found some resources on on that very very good resources on the fact that this is not retribution, this is not punishment, this is not anger. This is shaping a human being to be successful in human life for God and for themselves. And so those resources are there, and uh, they're good to read. And I mention that because maybe you're new to the things of the Lord, and you got a child that you feel like, I'm losing this child at a young age, and um, is there any help for me? And there are some good resources, I'm sure, in our, even in our own bookstore upstairs in our library as well for free that can help you get started related to that. The most important thing, though, in disciplining our children is that we be highly disciplined as parents in that, consistent and under the control of the Holy Spirit. No one, this isn't just find a spoon and just start whacking people. Um, this, is a, this is a very measured, deliberate, purposeful um, thing that we do with our children. Verse 25. The righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. So God supplies the physical needs of the righteous. And then not only that, but the righteous enjoy their meals. And the wicked don't enjoy their meals. And the wicked often go hungry. Again, the thing that you never see uh, on the headlines. And then chapter 14, verse 1. The wise woman builds her house. The idea is her household. In other words, she cares for it. She wants it to flourish. She causes it to flourish. But the foolish woman, so there's wise women and foolish women in terms of how the tone that they set for their household. So the wise woman is cares about it, wants it to flourish. She builds it up and, and, uh, and all. But the foolish woman, she tears it down with her hands. She pulls down her house with her hands. So this speaks to the influence of the wife or the mother in the home. The wife or the mother generally 
she is the most dominant influence within the house. She sets the tone for the house. That's a wonderful privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility as well. And so the wise woman works hard to produce a peaceful uh, home, an edifying home, a positive kind of home in terms of the atmosphere of that. And the foolish woman or is a wife or a mother whose influence on the home is just one of conflict and the house is just always in in combat and and there's instability and negativity and all of that. And uh, it's a good proverb for us to just stop and allow to search our hearts. Sometimes we think it's everybody else, and, and sometimes it can be, but sometimes a person can step back, and here it's talking about women, to step back and say, what, um, what atmosphere or tone am I setting in this home and, uh, and uh, in order for people to uh, feed off of or respond to? Very important. Verse 2, He who walks in his uprightness uh, fears the Lord. In other words, he has a desire to please God. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. He doesn't fear God, doesn't care what God uh, thinks about him. And uh, so our actions reveal our attitude toward God. You know a tree by its fruit. So the actions simply reveal whether uh, we have a reverential attitude toward God or whether we have one uh, that is uh, perverse. In the mouth, verse 3, in the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. And so the words of the fool spoken in pride, they come back to punish him. They come back to beat him, give him a beating. So the foolish man is continually saying foolish things, and those words come back uh, to haunt uh, him. So we talk about people being their own worst enemy. Well, that's what this kind of person is talking about. They are their own worst enemy by what comes uh, out of their mouth and what comes out of their mouth uh, ends up uh, disciplining them over and over and over again. But the lips of the wise will preserve them. And so wise words, those aren't words that you regret. They never uh, have an after effect uh, or any kind of adverse you know, consequence to them. Verse 4, where no oxen are, in other words, the farmer uh, isn't, uh, is, is so poor that he doesn't have oxen with which to plow his fields. Where no oxen are, uh, the feed trough or the stall where animals are kept is clean. Uh, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Now, oxen, like most animals, uh, they make a mess. Uh, but they are worth the mess that they make because you can accomplish a greater harvest with oxen than you can without them. There, w- it wasn't, there wasn't a single farmer in the ancient world who would have killed his oxen in order to have a clean stable. <laughs> this would never have entered into their mind uh, to do something like that. For the simple reason that the blessing that those oxen bring to the farmer far, far outweighs the mess that they make. And the same thing is true in the spiritual harvest field of of Christian work. You might have noticed that some of God's servants really create a mess in their stall or their cubicle or their office or in their area of ministry. 
And if all you did was look at the mess instead of looking at the amount of work that's getting done and impact for the kingdom that's getting done, uh, that, that is, the mess is just a byproduct of that, then you say, they're not worth it. But you gotta look past the mess to see, look what's coming out of their life and look at the great things that uh, that they're doing. And so the eyes always have to shift from the mess that they're making to the work that they do for the kingdom. And then you realize the fruit is greater than the mess. Visionaries in the body of Christ, uh, they make big messes. People who think big, uh, they make messes in, in, uh, in, in the work. I mean, they just plow forward and and that you you got to have administrative types and support people to come behind them and uh, to you know clean up that mess and mend it and establish some kind of a structure so that things can be, keep moving forward. People who are willing to try something new uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but God is always doing new things. That kind of person, they oftentimes they make messes. Leaders always make uh, messes. But typically, great things are accomplished by these kind of Christians in, in the Christian work. Now, I want to be careful to say this isn't um, speaking of sin or the mess that people can make out of sin or the messes that people can cause by pride or self-will. Here's a person that just does whatever they want to do. They make a mess in all directions, and then they just expect everyone to clean up after them because they lack um, you know, having heard the Lord, or they've just got arrogance, or they've got pride, or this kind of a thing, and 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 the mess that comes out of uh, of all of all of that. We're talking about like construction. When you've got construction going on, things get messy before the good things uh, that the construction is about can begin to unfold. And so, it would be a disaster if a clean stall ever became more important to a farmer. Uh, than his crop. And I think it's important to realize in the same way that if a minister, a servant of the Lord, becomes more concerned about a clean stall than a spiritual harvest, then his life and his ministry will become very, very small and it will become fruitless. And, and, and that's an important word and it's a good word. And I think that those that are in an administrative position or a supervisor position in God's work, they're the ones that kind of have to deal with the messes. Uh, We need to maintain Solomon's perspective in all of this, Uh, that, yes, there is a mess, but look at what is happening uh, in that person's life. Somebody wrote, a passion for order and dustlessness must not put on the brake, put the brakes on progress and productiveness. And it's true. And I'd like to also add that no servant of the Lord will ever be fruitful if they make not making a mess or not making a mistake the primary goal of their Christian service. And sometimes people do that. They've just got a perfectionism or they've got an insecurity, or whatever it is, and they're so concerned about making a mess or a dirty stall that they're determined not to do that at any cost. 
and the result of that is that they never end up having any kind of impact or any kind of, 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 of ministry. The focus is not to not make a mess or a mistake. The primary goal is our Christian service, is fruitfulness. And there are a lot of people around, and I don't say to this, say, yeah, they're all around here, and boy, when you run into them, poke them in the eye. It's, it's for um, exhorting our own hearts. There are so many people, and I think that this number is increasing literally by the year today. It's a tone. It's a, I don't like it, but it's happening a lot in the body of Christ right now. And there's so many people who just sit around and they criticize everything that everyone is try, who is trying to do something for God. And all they do is they see the dirty stall. And they never look at, look at the great thing that God has done. And they'll put whole blogs together to talk about the dirty stall. And sometimes you might read a page or two of the comments and you go, but look at what God has done. Nobody can be used by God in that way except there are going to be occasional messes. Because nobody's perfect. Again, I'm not talking about willful rebellion and willful sin or these kind of things. But the body of Christ is a moving thing. And there's going to be a mess on things. And then very often you look at the person that's criticizing everyone who's doing something. But there's some complications as a result of the ministry, as a result of all of that. Their stalls are perfectly clean because they're not accomplishing anything for God, but they want to criticize everybody else. Don't fall for it. Don't fall. Don't you fall for that. There's going to be some cleanup that has to occur in any church or in any ministry that's being used by God in any way and being effective in any way uh, for the Lord. And so when there's much being done, accomplished for God, there's always going to be a dirty stall and uh, never a clean one. And it's good to know. Perfection, we'll know it in heaven. We won't know it in this life. Verse 5, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. And so the answer to this is don't lie. (laughs) This is talking especially about in a court of law or where... Um, the consequences, honesty is always important, but where people's uh, life or death or property or a judgment is going to come down and a lot is, is riding on people being accurate in their facts, the importance of uh, things that they're not be lying. Verse 6, a scoffer seeks wisdom and doesn't find it. And the reason he doesn't find it is it comes from God, uh, but he rejects God. But knowledge is easy to him who understands because uh, he, uh, he knows where to find it. He knows to, how, where to find it in God. Think about um, the brilliant man who still thinks himself to be uh, smarter than God. And there's a lot of people in the world today. They're very, very smart. And, uh, and then they get a little too full of themselves and now... They believe that they are smarter than uh, God. And the proverb teaches here that 
if, if a person believes that they're smarter than God, they will live and die an absolute simpleton as it relates to wisdom. And then here's another person over here who dropped out of school in the fifth grade, but they know God and they love God and they obey uh, his, uh, his word, and that person is going to enjoy a much higher quality of life in terms of wisdom uh, because they, they honor God's word, they know it, and they obey it. And so you've got, it's like the old saying where the one old woman who uh, was in the South and, and didn't have much and, again, dropped out of school young and everything, and she said, well, when you ain't got no education, you just got to use your brain. Sometimes it's like that. People have uh, all kinds of education, and, but there's a lot of highly educated idiots out there, and, and I say that affectionately, mostly affectionately, because you reject God's wisdom, you can never be wise. You can be smart as all get out, but you can never be wise. You look at how many, how many smart people are self-destructing. Being smart and being wise are two entirely different things. And it can save your life to realize that there's a difference between the two things. God provides us with the wisdom. He gave you the smarts, but... He's the only source of wisdom. Verse 7, go from the presence of a foolish man. Now, nobody get up and leave. When you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. In other words, don't let anyone, this kind of person, influence you or speak into your life. Sometimes there's just conversations you, can, you need to walk away from or relationships to walk away, or influence to walk away from. It's not just people that we're talking to face-to-face, where it's just folly and it's nonsense that's coming out of their mouth. And we're all capable of it apart from the Lord. But, that kind of, but it also has to do with television, changing the channel on that, or talk radio, or other radio, um, or a book that we're reading, or whatever it might be. As soon as there's that recognition that I'm in the presence of a foolish man here, Get out from under that the influence of uh, that person when you don't perceive in him the lips of knowledge. And so it also, this proverb indicates that if you're sharing the gospel or you're ministering some spiritual truth to somebody and then they become resistant, they become belligerent, they become arrogant or even borderline violent or whatever, and you realize, I'm not going to get through to this person. I've said what I can say to them, and they're not interested, and so I'm going to move on uh, in my street witnessing to share with somebody who is interested in hearing. And that's an important thing to know uh, as well. And then you leave what you did get to speak in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and he won't uh, let it uh, return void. In verse 8, the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. In other words, the prudent man thinks ahead in terms of his decisions. What is the end of this decision? How does it impact me? How does it impact other people? He, he uh, thinks about his decision-making. But the folly of fools is deceit. And so they believe their own lies that are contrary to God's word, and they end up casualties on the path of life. Verse 9, and we'll stop there tonight. Um, fools mock at sin. They mock at the idea of sin. 
Now listen, fools mock at sin. How many people in the United States of America alone mock at the idea of sin? What does the Bible call them? This is a foolish. That person is a fool. Fools mock at sin, the idea of sin, but sin will come back and mock them. Always will. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. It is just a fact of life. But among the upright, there is favor. The person who lives the upright life, he has favor with God, and he also has favor uh, with his fellow man. He is respected, and that is a valuable thing. We'll stop there at verse 9 and uh, pick things up in verse 10. Uh, If we're here uh, next week, and uh, uh, barring the rapture of the church, And so let's stand together and we'll pray. If the worship team comes forward, I'd love to have you close us up in worship. Hmm. Thank you, Lord, for these proverbs, these nuggets of wisdom. That just by heeding them, Lord... It spares us so much heartbreak and so much pain. And the worst pain of all is doing damage to other people and people that we love most in life. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your willingness to share your wisdom with us, Lord, to take that risk. We think about how many people in the world will watch another person crash and burn and never speak up into their life because of the risk of rejection or the risk of the relationship. And Lord, we thank you so much for the risk that you have taken of being misunderstood, of being mocked by putting your truth in this book, even the truths that we've looked at tonight, so that people like us could take them to heart and enjoy a quality of life that we would never otherwise know. Thank you, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.